We have an exciting partnership to announce before we get into today's Scuttlebutt. Scuttlebutt has been asked to join Reads Across America Radio, a 24-7 internet radio station where you can listen to veteran stories 24-7. Uh, you can find that on the iHeartRadio app. You can also find it on their website, readsacrossamerica.org. The Scuttlebutt will be featured Friday nights at 9 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. If you don't know anything about Reads Across America, they're an incredible organization, all dedicated to honoring veterans uh, and, and those who uh, gave all in service to our country. Check out the Scuttlebutt on their radio station and all the other programs that they have on their 24-7 radio station, again, on iHeartRadio app or readsacrossamerica.org. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. You can find out everything there is to know about the VBC on our website, www.veteransbreakfastclub.org. You can become a member. You can sign up to receive our free quarterly magazine. You can find out about our Veterans History Project, our Monday night Zoom programs, uh, everything and everything. Uh, please visit us on the website. Today's episode of The Scuttlebutt focuses really in on leadership and how to become a good leader. To speak to that, I'm joined by Pat D'Amico. He is a corporate advisor to Fortune 500 executives and CEO of About Face Development. We get into that, we get a lot into his service, and we do, we talk a lot about leadership, becoming a good leader, how to do that, how to coach leaders uh, to be better leaders, how to coach a team to more efficiently do their work. Uh, Pat's a great guy, I had a great conversation with him, uh, and I was very interested to hear about how his service uh, really uh, inspired him to go into coaching uh, later on in life. Uh, he has a great story uh, and very energetic guy. I hope that you enjoy this conversation. Please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. Enjoy the show. Joining me for today's episode of The Scuttlebutt is Pat D'Amico. Uh, Pat, you have a really interesting story to tell. I'm excited to dive into the successes you've had uh, becoming a corporate advisor uh, to the Fortune 500 executives, a, a lot of stuff here, and your service history. Love for you to introduce yourself. Thank you for joining me on The Scuttlebutt. Well, thanks, Sean, and thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I've, I've had a very uh, a varied career and, and a, 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 probably a little bit um, uh, not uh, not traditional, I guess I would say, but I started my career in the Army actually right after high school. Um, I always admit I was not a good high school student. Uh, I had a good time, but uh, when I was graduating, my parents said, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, I'm going to go to college. And they found that interesting and laughed because they had no money to send me and I really didn't have any grades that were going to get me any help. So, um, so I really went, uh, you know, figured out that the army was the route. So I enlisted after high school, uh, ended up uh, competing for an army scholarship and ultimately ended up at Valley Forge Military Academy in the early commissioning program. So uh, after my sophomore year, I was commissioned an officer. At that time in the reserves, I finished up my four-year degree, and then I went on active duty. And I like to say that although the Army paid for college, they got a lot more out of me than than uh, than I got out of them. It was an interesting time. It was the 89 to 94 time frame. So oh. uh, I was in Panama, mm -hmm. uh, as well as Saudi Arabia and Iraq during Desert Storm. I also did, a, uh, did some time in Cuba, Guantanamo Bay as well, um, way before anybody knew where or what Guantanamo Bay was. Um, mm -hmm. But after that, I, I, I exited the military. It's actually been 30 years. Uh, I just celebrated my 30th year in industry. Uh, and I first went to work for Johnson & Johnson. I spent 15 years there, started in sales, did sales management time. I did a lot of sales operations time. I ran recruiting for sales for J&J for the US for a few years. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, I left J&J to go to startup as a VP of commercial operations. 
that was a five-year plan that after two years we were bought by an organization uh, called Medtronic, which is the largest medical device manufacturer in the world. Mm-hmm. And I spent about eight or ten years there, uh, primarily at that point in my career, really focused on learning and development. And so uh, I have a, a master's degree in, uh, in education instructional design. Uh, I left Medtronic when I didn't want to move to Minneapolis for a promotion. So uh, nothing gets Minneapolis, but I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and I had seen enough snow for four lifetimes. <laughs> so, uh, so the last six or seven years, uh, I've been a, a consultant running my own business called About Face Development. There's an interesting story if you want to delve into why I call the company About Face Development. Mm-hmm. And uh, my focus is primarily uh, leadership and management development with Fortune 500 companies. And I also do quite a bit of individual one-on-one executive coaching. So I'm a, I'm a certified coach through Berkeley, uh, University, of California, University of California, Berkeley. Um, but that's essentially what I do. I, I, I'm, I'm fortunate. I get to do what I'm passionate about, which is developing leaders and helping people reach their full potential. I, I, my mantra is every employee deserves a good manager. Um, and there's a lot of that's lacking. So uh, I think it's a little bit of an epidemic. So that's sort of, that's sort of what I do, man. That's absolutely an epidemic. Uh, I, I I hear you on that. Not that, that we at VBC have a, I have a really wonderful manager, but I've had bad managers in my past and uh, couldn't be more happy that you are committed yeah. to making better managers because <laughs> we absolutely need them. Um, and I'm sure that that stems from a bit of your your army experience. I want to I want to go back to that to start, and then we can dive uh, much more into you know the last 30 years of uh, like I said a very successful career. Uh, so you enlisted in '89. Uh, I enlisted in '85 actually. '85. Okay. Yeah, I enlisted right after high school, 17, and my parents signed me away. And it was an interesting uh, because at the time, what I didn't understand was that if I enlisted for the with the goal of getting a scholarship in the early commissioning program. What I didn't know at the time was, had I not won the scholarship, I would have ended up having to go on active duty and would have had to done a full four years before I could go to college. It was a little unclear. I was fortunate um, that uh, I was awarded the scholarship, uh, you know, pretty much right away and and found myself um, at Valley Forge Military Academy uh, while serving in the National Guard at the same time as an enlisted soldier. Do you think, what did you need the most uh, at that time, at that age? Did you need the discipline? Did you need uh, the world experience? Was it kind of all of it? So that's a great question. So my parents were shocked. They did not come from a military family. My father had been in the National Guard, but he used to laugh about what that was like back when he was younger. And so um, it was my senior year. I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I was literally in the guidance office in my high school. And I looked on the shelf and all of the military school brochures were all together. Mm-hmm. And I remember pulling out the one for, you know, VMI and West Point, the Naval Academy. And I was like, um, I had been fairly disciplined. When I sit, when I, I was disciplined from the standpoint that I woke up every day, uh, most of my high school career at 430 in the morning to go work out at the gym. My brother-in-law owned a gym and it was great. We worked out every morning before it opened. So I was disciplined that way. But I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I, I just was very unclear. I hadn't really thought a whole lot about it, to be frank with you. Yeah. And so I said, you know what, this might help me. And I needed this. I knew I needed discipline around my studies. Mm-hmm. And there's no question when, you know, when all of a sudden I, you know, I, first of all, I was fortunate. I, I had had leadership experience in high school that really translated well when I got to Valley Forge mm-hmm. as a cadet, but 
the requirement around the expectations around your studies were pretty significant and really created great study habits for me. And, you know, frankly, my academic achievement, you know, skyrocketed, uh, you know, once in that setting where, you know, I, I, I like discipline, I could be disciplined, but I'd never been disciplined in that area. So I think mm -hmm. that's really what helped me. And, uh, and that's sort of what led to, um, you know, then my decision to, uh, to, to apply for regular army, go on active duty versus, you know, versus the option of staying, you know, of, of serving out my time in the National Guard. How different was that between National Guard and active duty? Was, was there a significant increase in, you know, uh, PT, uh, responsibility, um, you know, teamwork? Yeah, so the guard's an interesting animal, and 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 you know I think it works for a lot of folks. What what I learned very quickly was, of course, I I went to basic training, then I went to Valley Forge and and lived through the plebe system, and then lived two years in a fully twenty four hour day military environment, and and I loved it and I thrived in it, and the experience that I had in the guard, um, you know, was not as uh, encouraging to me, I guess I would say, it just wasn't the right experience for me. And then when I left Valley Forge after my sophomore year and having gotten commissioned, I finished my degree in DC in Washington, and I had to serve for two years as a platoon leader in the DC National Guard. And again, coming out of the environment of a full-time military experience, you know, I, although Valley Forge was technically ROTC, it wasn't a military academy it's still a full-time military experience. You're going to a military school. So I, when I left Valley Forge, I missed that tremendously. Uh, so I, I couldn't wait to finish up my degree and, uh, and, and get in, you know, and go full-time into the regular army because that's really what, it's really what I desired. I wanted that full-time experience of being fully committed to this, you know, this, this, this purpose that I felt so, you know, that I, I felt so passionate about. You said that you had some experience like in high school with leadership what was your leadership like in the National Guard as you started to make that transition to the military? Because we know that not all leaders in the military are great as well. You know, we have some some maybe rotten apples, but uh, there are some phenomenal leaders as well that that a lot of our veterans have latched onto and said, this person really set me straight. This person really gave me the right drive, really supported me. Well, that that goes to, I think, my 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 second mentor, my first mentor in life being my father, but my second mentor with, without a question was a gentleman by the name of Sergeant Major George Deedy. He was actually a primary instructor when I was at Valley Forge, Vietnam, you know, three-tour Vietnam vet, had been a member of the old guard, tomb, you know, tomb guard, uh, the unknown soldier. And the two years I spent with him, I think he had, you know, arguably the greatest influence on me of, of understanding, you know, the importance of service, of dedication, but most importantly, the leadership lessons that he taught me. And in fact, the when I was when I was a plebe there, he taught me really what I considered my first leadership lesson that I talk about today all the time when I'm teaching, you know, facilitating programs now in corporate America. He three lessons he told me were uh, first one was don't mess with people's pay. Of course, he didn't use the word mess. He used another word. It was the old army, right? <laughs> um, he would say, don't mess with people's pay. If somebody's got a pay problem, fix it yesterday. You know, the, the idea being, look, most people do not work for charity. They want to support their families. When somebody has a pay problem, it, you know, it, it, it's overriding. That was number one. Number two is don't mess with people's off time. When people are off, let them be off, right? People need their, their downtime. And I've, really taken that lesson and I've, 
you know, I've reworked it when I'm training managers and leaders to say, not only do you need to let your people have their time off, but you need to set the right example for them. And I'll say to these folks, if you're telling your people, hey, when you're off, put an out of office on, send it my way. But then when you as a leader, if you're going on vacation and you're telling them, hey, look, I'm on vacation, but I'll be available, you're not setting the right example. You, you, mm-hmm. they're, they're leaving that thinking, well, you're telling me I'm off, but your expectation is really that I'm available. Um, so those are the first two lessons. But Sean, the third lesson is, to me, has been the most important lesson and still is the most important lesson as a leader and as a developer of leaders. And that is that if your people truly believe you care about them and are looking out for their best interests, they will perform for you. Mm-hmm. And so when I am talking to potential leaders, I will say, if you are the person who gets the most uh, excitement out of being on stage and being recognized, being a leader may not be for you, right? You have to get more, you have to be jazzed more and, and, be, and be more excited about watching your people succeed. Because ultimately as a leader, your entire success is predicated on your people performing. And I firmly believe they will perform if you are looking out for them, you're trying to develop them, you're coaching them, you're doing what's right for them, that everyone succeeds. So I've carried that lesson with me. I, I, I must mention it a dozen times a month. It, it comes mm-hmm. up all the time, but um, I've seen plenty of leaders who survive for a while being very about themselves, but eventually that comes out. But as a leader, you've, you've just got to put the well-being and the success of your people before your ultimately you you will have success. So that's that's a fantastic lesson, absolutely. Um, and I love the one also about uh, when they're off, they're off. Because here in America, yeah. it, I mean, my wife and I talk about this because we recently, ha- you know, had our second child, and we talk about oh, like congratulations, thank you. And and they're they're definitely in the corporate America. It's like okay, well, uh, you just had a baby, but you can you can take emails, right? And it's like no, you have to like you have to support the person who's going to be out for a little while, especially like in a, in a childbearing case, you know, but like this idea in in America, it seems like there's just like, okay, well, you're, you're sort of off, but you know, you're available. Well, and, and and honestly, Sean, it's so funny. We're talking about this a half hour ago. I was on a call with somebody at at a, a, a corporate, you know, leader, and they were just sharing this with me. They just had their fourth child. And he was saying, you know, I was on paternity leave, but really I wasn't on. And, And I think technology has been, really the, the the biggest detriment in in this area is the most impact right i mean mm-hmm. at one time if you didn't call my home phone or if i didn't answer i didn't have to deal with it and now it's you know we're just we're so available all the time and i i think you really as a leader need to impress on people and sometimes you really need to force people because they're you know it, it's it's not always the leader's fault for sure i know a lot of highly motivated employees that just can't seem to disconnect and and if i have to i'll be harsh with them you know mm-hmm. i mean you know, especially if they're on vacation with their family, right? I mean, they work hard. Their family has a right to uh, to enjoy the fruits of their labor, labor with them, mm-hmm. not, you know, with them present, not just with them physically there. Right. Yeah. And the whole idea of just teamwork, you're not going to, you know, it's not going to be success story, just you shining a shine, you know, a light on yourself and patting yourself on the back. Like your team is there to support you and help make it all happen. That just, yeah, yeah that's brilliant. Um, uh, I know we just dove down a little rabbit hole here, but let's go back. What was your MOS? Uh, so I was in, I was in 90, uh, I was a MP. I was a military police officer. Oh, excellent. And did, did you enjoy that work? I really did. Um, I was fortunate because I did not really, I had a very 
of my time in, I only had a very short stint of less than a year that was on the law enforcement side. The majority of the time I spent in a in a combat support unit. Um, so, you know, uh, and, and even post uh, the invasion of Panama, although we were in a lot, we were technically in a law enforcement capacity. It was post the invasion. You know, I was responsible for um, interface and running security, really law enforcement for the city of Panama, which is a you know, pretty major, you know, large city. Mm-hmm. So uh, so it was really interesting. It was an interesting MOS. Um, I enjoyed the soldiers that I worked with. Um, again, great deployments. Uh, we went to Saudi Arabia and Iraq, where I handled area security, uh, prisoners of war. I went to Guantanamo Bay, where our work was with the Haitian migrants. You know, more unusual circumstance when the U.S. was was you know diverting them there, and we were housing them there uh, while figuring out what was you know what what was the best outcome or the best way to handle it. So yeah, I, I really did enjoy. Um, I did really did enjoy uh, being an MP. So based off of that original lesson of get your team to to be successful and be a, a, how did you implement that in your time as as MP? So it was interesting because when I arrived um, when I arrived at my first active duty unit after being uh, commissioned, and of course I had served in the National Guard, so it was unusual for the commander because normally a second lieutenant arrives, they're fresh out of their officer basic course, and this is their first platoon leader assignment. Um, I had already spent a couple, not only had I spent a couple of years uh, in the National Guard as a platoon leader, but I had been uh, the company commander of the college at Valley Forge, so I'd had 200 people in my charge with a full staff. So it was funny because I, I left my basic course, I arrived to uh, my duty station, and we sat down and we met for about a half hour. He told me he assigned me to the second platoon, and I went in to settle down the second platoon. They were clearly expecting me, right? The platoon sergeant and platoon lead, the platoon uh, that the squad leaders were there, and started getting settled. And about ten minutes later. The uh, executive officer comes back in and says, uh, the commander would like to see again. So I go back to his office and he says, uh, look, um, I've given it some more thought after meeting you. Um, I'm going to assign you to the fourth platoon. And to be very clear, they haven't had a platoon leader in probably two or three years. They don't want a platoon leader. Uh, They're the most undisciplined group in the company. Everybody kind of avoids them. You know, congratulations. So, (laughs) so. I walk, I walk into the platoon office, Sean, and the platoon sergeant, nice guy, looks at me and goes, uh, what can I help you with, sir? Right, of course, because I had no reason to be there. And I said, well, actually, I've just been assigned as a platoon. I mean, they were in shock. Um, but I think to answer your question, uh, the reality was they needed a platoon leader, didn't know they did, because they had. I think they were living through a combination of, okay, we didn't have a platoon leader, we didn't have an officer supporting us, and therefore we weren't getting anything we wanted, and we were getting, they were getting more and more undisciplined. So I will tell you that, you know, uh, working, that platoon sergeant was incredible, and working with him and with the, you know, squad leaders and leadership of the platoon, we turned the platoon around incredibly in the matter of a couple months, which we only had a couple months because, uh, uh, we were going to Panama. I just didn't know that. I, I had I had orders for Ranger School post um, uh, my officer basic course, and two weeks before I was done, uh, my accessions officer called, assignments officer called, and she said um, your 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 orders have been canceled. And I said why? And she said I I don't know. You'd have to call your gaining commander. So um, come to find out, I arrived at the unit and we were deploying to Panama within you know about six weeks or eight weeks. Hmm. How did that deployment change you? That was your first deployment, right? That was my first deployment. Well, um, 
No, I had actually done some time in Honduras uh, mm -hmm. when I was with the National Guard. Um, but Probably not as maybe kinetic, as they say, as Panama at that point. Fair enough. And not as extended. Yeah. Right. So how, yeah. so how did that time in Panama change you as a leader, change you as a person? Well, anytime you're operating in a foreign country, especially immediately post the invasion, it, 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 there's a lot of chaos. So I, I think what it what it did for me was you know different than the invasion of Panama, which was a finite amount of time and fairly quickly, right? Mm -hmm. Chaos there. This became sort of extended chaos. Um, I think it made me more conscious of evaluating my uh, national partners, I guess I would say, because one of the challenges we had in Panama was the police force post the invasion was filled with both Noriega sympathizers, frankly, and those opposed and trying to determine who was who and who really had the best interests in mind. There's a lot of corruption. We were dealing with a lot of that. Ironically, we at the time also, the uh, uh, our, our operations were being run by Colonel Steele. You're, you're, you're young, probably not even remember, but Colonel Steele was a close friend of Oliver North's. Mm -hmm. um, Colonel Steele was up for a star, never got a star largely due to that. Uh, so there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of political uh, influence going on in the country at the same time. So uh, it really allowed me from a leadership perspective to hone down to my soldiers what was important and really shut out the noise because there was a lot of noise when we were there. There was there was a lot of rumors about things that were happening, wasn't happening, you know, infiltration into the police forces we were supporting. So it allowed me to really uh, to benefit also from the leadership of my platoon sergeant who had been around at that point in the army for you know well over 20 years and really coordinate with them. So I, I was a big believer in, um, and I think I learned this at Valley Forge, uh, officers bring a certain strategic way of thinking to the table, but your senior NCOs bring that experience to the table. And I learned that from my mentor, Sergeant Major Didi. So we always had a good relationship. I was very willing to come in and go, hey, look, here's what I know, and it's this much, and here's what I don't know, and it's a lot. And you know, help, help me grow here, and let's make each other successful. So I think that understanding and appreciating um, your NCO ranks and what other leaders below you may have expertise in um, continued to humble me as a leader moving forward. Uh, and it really hits home how crucial, we're gonna keep hitting that word leadership is because this unit was, was like you said, sort of starting to become a little too loose. Oh, they were uh, way too loose. <laughs> right, and you don't have a platoon leader, but like, you know, and, and a company can do that as well. They, it doesn't just become like Lord of the Flies, uh, but it certainly is like they don't have that that person that sort of gets them on the, all the right track, correct? Yeah, and it's funny because it it also in its own way creates a unique sense of camaraderie. Mm -hmm. uh, I was working with the group. I'll, I'll bring this back. I was with a group last week in in a major corporation, a name you would know. And uh, at the end of each day of each program i always ask people to write down one thing that resonated and share it with the team and it's a it's a reinforcement of sort of what they think will work for them and at the end of it somebody asked me for the first time somebody said what resonated with you about this group and i said it's a, i said thank you for asking uh i said i'm trying to understand how this group is so tight with each other because i've seen that over the last couple of days yet you've all only been together for about three months so I said, I'm really trying to reconcile and understand that. 
And the most senior person said, the reality is it's been a really tough road, right? We've, we've been pulled together to try to get at a business problem that no one had any advice on. We've taken a lot of licks, but we've supported each other. And I said to them, you know, I'm not a pro- necessarily a proponent of this. I don't want to come off that way. But what I have learned is when you put a group in a, in, in a situation where there's a lot of adversity and at times a lot of suffering, um, the camaraderie that develops quickly is pretty amazing. And I think for me, I've seen that numerous times. I saw it when I went to military school because that's frankly one of the ways they try to do that. They try to make life miserable so you will all come together and that that happens. But I saw it with with the platoon in Panama. You know, we did a good job of coming together before we deployed. But the reality is once we were there and the situation was adverse and we were facing real challenges, everybody really stepped up to help each other. And I saw it tenfold when I took that same group to Saudi Arabia and Iraq, where I think we beyond excelled in comparison to the rest of the groups there, because we had really, the group had lived through an adversity that was the result of them believing they were sort of outcasts. So they, there was the sort of camaraderie of you know the Island of Misfit toys sort of thought process. And I think I, I was able to capitalize on that. Right. And take, take it, you know, from here to here. So it was great. I like that Island of Misfit toys as opposed to Lord of the flies. It's a very different story. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That works. How did your leadership support you and, and, and promote your success? Because giving you that assignment, I'm sure it was daunting and, and exhausting in a lot of ways. Uh, but then you get to, you know, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and then you say they, they're they're excelling. How, did your leadership notice this? Yeah. And you know what? Um, you know, I, I think it's important to understand different leadership styles. Um, we had a commander that drove us incredibly hard, hmm. uh, which you can do for a limited amount of time. Right. And, and, and we were within that time frame. You know, I, I will tell you that when when he transitioned command, I, I knew the next person was going to have a, was going to have a tough road because you can only drive people so hard. And I, and I use some of, you know, I, I, I share when I'm doing leadership and management development, I kind of share with folks, you can only drive people super hard for a certain amount of time. You've got to understand what that breaking point is and when you need to give them a break. Mm-hmm. But he was incredibly supportive, especially from the standpoint of recognizing the strengths that I had and playing to those strengths specifically when it came to certain assignments. And I think he did that with all of us as, as subordinate leaders. He, he understood and knew both from being good enough to ask, right? Number one, Mm -hmm. but also observation to be able to say, you know, this, this leader is really good at this. And when those assignments came, he was very thoughtful about where to put them that also had an impact on me in my professional career outside the military because I started looking going in the future I want to be someone that my manager or leader is comfortable with me doing any of those things so I I very much look at my career progression and my skills and say you know I'm a master of a few things um, but I'm dangerous enough in almost everything you know, right. so I can go into an executive meeting. It really plays well in my executive coaching. Um, and before I, let me, I'll share this. Uh, early in my, my career, corporate career, I had a boss who said to me, look, you know what the requirements and responsibilities are of your job. As long as you're doing those and completing those successfully, 
If there are other things you want to be involved in, just let me know and we'll talk about it. And I got to tell you, Sean, I took, I overtook advantage of that over. I was like, Hey, look, I don't have any finance experience. I need a couple pro I, are there any major projects going on with finance that I can either sit in on or be part of? Okay. We got that. And so I developed this reputation in my career of, I could sit in an executive meeting and any topic that came up, I could speak intelligently to it. And now as an executive coach, because I now as an executive coach, I coach people in different functions, right? I co coach different functional leaders, commercial, human resources, finance. I, I coach folks in all those areas because I have enough of an, an understanding of their functional area mm -hmm. that allows me to be able to coach them. So I think that's really important for a long-term career is knowing that you know, understanding different functions, at least mm -hmm. at a baseline is really important because you're going to find yourself as you move up in meetings where you're not all within your function, right? In fact, you're the one or two from every function. That is a very, you're a very unique person in that way, because to be able to take the bull by the horns, a lot of these areas and say, I'm going to learn as much as I can about as much as I can to mm -hmm. further my career, especially at such a young age uh, and being exposed to so much and the military really, it seems like the military, your leadership there really gave you a lot of breath to say, this guy knows what he's doing, has the drive, has the will. Let me know what you want to do. And, you know, we're going to support you in that. Yeah. And I've always been, you know, leadership is a never ending journey. Yeah. I am, I consider myself first and foremost, I am a student of leadership. And so, and I've always felt that way. So I'm always looking for, you know, anything I can get my hands on, read, you know, documentary, anything that sort of continues to educate, observing others, understanding. I do a lot of what we call diagnostic work in my business. So in fact, it's where I, a call I was on before ours, where I was talking to a new client and we're talking about, you know, how many interviews will I do with their leaders? I'm going to spend probably, I'm going to probably do 25 to 30 interviews of an hour each. Gives me a real feel for what are the organizational challenges? What do these leaders know? What do they need development in? What are their strengths? You know, what are their, you know, what are their areas of development? So um, I'm, I'm just a big proponent of, you know, if you are a leader, you, you have to be a student of leadership and you have to be, there's no, there, there's no finish line, right? You can always develop and get better as leaders. We can always learn more. If you're reflective on that time, what would you say was probably your biggest weakness as a leader? And was it just that, big amount that you didn't know? Or, you know, what would you say was that? Um, I'll admit it was my ego. Hmm. Uh, I, I had been a leader, again, in, in both, you know, in, in high school, in some, you know, school groups, as well as external to high school and in external groups. And then I get to Valley Forge. Well, then I, then I, I get awarded the scholarship, right? I finished first in my my class there. Um, then I go to Valley Forge and I am like, okay, what's, you know, what's the role I want in my second year? Well, to me, it was the company commander of the college, right? I got that role. So I had a lot of confidence, Sean, and where it all came to a head for me was the morning we were deploying to uh, Saudi Arabia and supported Desert Shield. Now we had gone to Panama. We had had tremendous success there. Feedback had been great. I had won you know, the awards and, and the, the, the organization had gotten, you know, tremendous feedback. And so it's the morning we're deploying and we're standing outside and uh, all my soldiers, 30, 30 at the time, 30 men were standing in front of me. 
and uh, we're getting ready to leave to go to Andrews Air Force Base to get on the plane. And I see behind my platoon all of their family members, right? Their fathers, mothers, their wives, significant others, children. And I walked to the back of the platoon. Many of them I knew. We were a very tight-knit group back then. And I walked to the back of the platoon to address them. And I, in that moment, said, um, you know, please write. We'll want to keep, we'll keep you as updated as we can. And I looked at everyone, and in a moment of tremendously poor judgment, Sean, I said, um, I promise to bring your, your husbands, your sons, and your fathers home alive. Yeah. And I regretted it as soon as I said it, and I lived six months every day thinking about that promise. Fortunately, I was able to keep it, but it was the greatest ego check I had ever had. I was like, for mm. me to believe at 23 years old at the time, that I was that I was that infallible, right? That I was that great a leader was a real learning experience. Um, I give myself some grace as much as I punish myself for it on a regular basis that, you know, I was a young kid and I had had a lot of success. Um, you know, I was, the accolades were, were pretty significant, but it taught me a huge lesson about no matter how good you are and or no matter how positive you want to be, don't ever make a promise to somebody that you can't keep, you know, and that's a pretty significant one. Interesting that you say that because uh, I talked a, a little bit here about one of our guests on the other VBC program we did. Ralph White, banker, went to Vietnam, fall of Saigon, had employees mm. that he was trying to get out during that phase. And his the, the most emotional he got during his story was the point where he said to one of his employees, I'm not going to leave you behind. And yeah. he knew that he probably couldn't keep that promise. He said, I regret it as soon as I said it, but it was that, it, it, you know, a young guy who knew what was coming for them in, in South Vietnam thought like, I'm going to get you out. Cause he just, like you said, sort of had that ego of like, yeah, I'm going to do yeah. this. And thankfully he did. Uh, but he said, I, I regret it as soon as I said it. And it's, you know, that, that sort of put you on the spot It put you in, you know, the, that you are now in charge of somebody's life and you want to make sure to, to follow through with that. I'm sure that was. Uh... Yeah. And, and part of it comes from, I mean, certainly I want to be, I mean, you know, I, it was because I cared so much. It was because oh, totally. I, I could feel what they felt, but the mm -hmm. reality is I, I made that statement um, because I, I, I thought I, I guess in the moment I thought I could keep it. And, and, you know, it, it yeah. even worse was um, on the day the ceasefire was called when we were over in. It was lunchtime. Uh, myself and a couple other of my fellow officers, peers, and we had the we had the small transistor radio hanging from the tent pole, and Armed Forces Network was playing, and um, and they just they announced the ceasefire, and um, we had barely had an opportunity for it to sink in, and the ground shook, and there was an explosion. We knew the explosion was within our camp, and as we grabbed our helmets and our weapons, I'm running out thinking. Oh my gosh, I just thought I had a moment of, oh my, oh my gosh, I'm gonna be able to keep my promise. Mm -hmm. And now I don't know if that's the case. Now, you know, luckily for me, um, they were they the, the soldiers that were injured in the explosion in the camp were not mine. Um, mm -hmm. they were they were within our unit, but not my soldiers. So uh, but again, right, right at that moment where I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna be able to I've lived six months thinking, why did I make that promise? I'm gonna be able to keep it. And just like that, it it came into question again. And I think there's the other side of that coin as well, that, that, you know, if I were a soldier in that unit, I would want my leader to be, you know, to have that confidence. confidence. Of, yeah, that, that yeah. high level of, you know, and yes, that puts all the pressure on you. But that's also like, 
if you're like, hey, uh, we, we might come back, you know, I mean, you want you want your leader to say, sure. we're going to get the job done and we're coming home. Yeah. And you want to do it in a way that's realistic. You know, I, yeah. I think people take solace in that. Right. They mm -hmm. want to know that. But but my approach now after learning that lesson is, you know, I want my folks to always know I'm going to do whatever I possibly can. Um, mm -hmm. You know, no stone unturned no lack of effort will ever apply when it comes to, you know, to them, my employees, you know, those that, that I'm responsible for. I like that over the course of our conversation of just diving into your service, that we're getting a, a really good feel for uh, what your post service was all about. A lot about leadership, a lot about what yeah. that was. So lead me through sort of, sort of that military to corporate transition that you made. Uh, you, 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 get, you get out of the military and, you know, you took on this very strong trajectory and trajectory in your life. Uh, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, at that time, um, you, you know, uh, military recruiting firms were, were becoming pretty popular. So I linked up with one and, and got placed at, at Johnson and Johnson in a sales role, um, uh, in the pharmaceutical sector, not a job. I just, you know, let you know, and be admit, not a job I loved. I didn't really like the space. Um, that end of things. And so I got really lucky. Um, I made a couple connections at Johnson Johnson and somebody called and said, Hey, look, we're, we're looking at creating this new department at J&J headquarters in New Jersey uh, to centralize sales recruiting for the U.S. If, you know, I'll move you up here. And if it works great, you got a job. If, if it doesn't work, at least you're, you're, you're moved up here. And I was eligible at that point for promotion to a manager anyways. So it did work out. You know, the, the, the department was successful. I eventually took it over from the person I'd started it with. And um, and that gave me exposure. The greatest thing about that job was because my role supported all three sectors at Johnson & Johnson. So consumer products, pharmaceuticals, and device. I got exposure to the entire organization. It kind of gave me an option to pick where I wanted to go next because I had built these, you know, I had so many relationships that I was able to build. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to move into the medical device sector. So that's essentially what it is. But the other thing I did do while I was running recruiting is I significantly expanded Johnson & Johnson's hiring of, of, of military folks coming out, both at the enlisted ranks and at the officer ranks. It was sort of my way to kind of give back. And there was a lot of need. And these are, these are you know, tremendous individuals to hire. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was able to put some programs in place and it's, and it's great now, Sean, it's 30 years later. I mean, it's funny. I was at, Med, I was at working at Medtronic about, I guess it was about 10 years ago and we bought this other massive organization and I'm looking at the leadership list and the, 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 the head of the sales, the sales group for the entire company that we bought was one of the guys I had first interviewed uh, yeah. when I was running recruiting. So uh, it's a small industry and I do run across those folks quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so that's really interesting. Um, but yeah, so, uh, and then, and then from the recruiting space, I kind of had my pick. So I went to the medical device side, did some, you know, some sales operations time. Uh, what I was a sales manager in New York city for about five and a half years. That was a great experience, really important to understanding business as a whole. I think, I think being a, uh, being a first line sales manager is one of the most important roles for folks in the business sector, if they're going to be touching commercial, mm -hmm. um, and then things just sort of, you know, I kept my eyes open. Things sort of came my way. I made some transitions to get some more functional experience. I moved to training for a while. I took a marketing job. I always tell people it's great to know what you're not good at. I'll never have to wonder if I would have loved a career in marketing because I hated it <laughs> and I was bad at it, you know? So I did that for a year and I'm like, okay, good. Check that box. Not something I want to do, right? Yeah. So um, did some time and training and then, and then, you know, also really focused on my, 
developing my own education as well. Mm -hmm. You know, got my master's in education late in life and things like that. How did you then uh, transition to consulting and, and really looking at like zeroing in on I'm going to help build better leaders? Yeah. So my last uh, eight years was primarily at that point, I was a leader. A, I was I'm sorry, I was a learning and development um, uh, your functional leader. Right. I mean, that was my sort of chosen you know, that, that was the function I settled in on was learning and development. And I was, you know, and my passion was leadership and management development. So I began to get an opportunity to, to develop large scale learning and management development programs, because that was my passion and began to be able to interact with folks who, you know, who were, they were passionate about as well, started learning from those groups. When, when Medtronic approached me and it was sort of like, I'd been in, in, a, in a pretty big learning and development job and it was time for me to get promoted. And it included, you know, the prospect of that included a move to Minneapolis. It was not something I wanted to do at the time. So I was now faced with this decision of, okay, do I wanna go do the same job again at another organization, which did not really jazz me at that point, right? Although there were plenty of opportunities because senior leaders in learning and development in my space, are, it's a small group of us, right? Mm -hmm. More opportunities than actually folks that are qualified. Yeah. Um, but it was at that point that uh, a company by the name of Matrix Achievement Group, who I had been a client of, uh, actually, they, they were a consultant, that group that I used, said, came to me and said, hey, look, um, considering you're looking for opportunities and, and we know leadership and management development is your passion, we could really use that expertise in our firm. Would you be willing to, you know, to start with us with a project? And that project, Sean, was like a dream come true. It was essentially... I got six months to look at all the research over the last 50 years for leadership and management development from academia, corporate, meta-analyses, all of this data and research, and then devise a leadership and management development program. It was like a dream come true. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's when I made that transition. And then since then, I've sort of expanded my portfolio of offerings, uh, became certified as an executive coach, even though I've been doing a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching because it is important, you know, for to have a certification, and uh, and that's sort of where I was off to the races. So I'm I'm really fortunate now that the last six or seven years, and as that time's gone on, even more focus of mine is on leadership and management development. Whenever you sit down with somebody in these one-on-ones, what what skills are you looking to to build? Are you looking to get like a full picture, a holistic sort of idea of of who they are, what their position is in the company, and as you said earlier figure out sort of what leadership they need in that in that department so i start with normally i'll do i'll conduct some sort of assessment um that can be done in like a 360 survey uh to be frank i prefer one-on-one -on -one interviews so i may take a slice let's say you were a senior leader in an organization i'm going to speak to your boss most of the time for me is going to be the president or the ceo um, if, if I'm coaching the CEO, it'll be a, it'll be the members of the board. Uh, I'm going to interview a couple peers, get their feedback, and then I'm going to interview some subordinates. I'm going to try to piece together um, some themes of what's this person really good at? What are some of the things this person could work on? Then I'm going to ask them the exact same questions that I asked the people I interviewed. Mm -hmm. uh, it tells me a lot about their self-awareness, uh, mm -hmm. but also tells me if maybe their leadership is telling them what's wrong or what isn't or what's good and what isn't right i find that a lot unfortunately where i i interview somebody um that i'm going to be coaching 
and they've never been told by their leader what they do well, what they need to improve. Uh, and then from there, Sean, it's we will devise sort of a short list of here are the things they want to develop. Sometimes that becomes sort of the majority of what we'll talk about over the six or 12 month engagement. Typically, it's mm -hmm. a minimum of six. Some people I've been with as long as a year and a half. Um, but other times it's really what's happening in the moment. So we may have a plan, but very common that I'll get on my call with them, which is an hour every other week. And we do it in this setting on Zoom. And they'll say, look, I, I don't know. I, we, I, there's something I talk to you about. There's a challenge I'm facing or this has come up, right? Um, what I do find with high performers, because what I do love about executive coaching is it used to be a tool for, hey, this person's on their way out. Can we fix them? And it was it was a waste of money and really shouldn't have been handled that way. Now it's really, hey, we've got this high potential person. We want to continue to develop them. So a lot of times the discussions are you know, around, here's a challenge I'm facing. Um, I'm not sure what angle to go at it. So we talk a lot about that. And then I do find with really high performers, they don't give themselves enough credit. So I find myself stopping. I was, I was on the phone with somebody yesterday. She's an amazing performer. And I, I found myself again having to stop and go, whoa, whoa, wait. Before you blow past that, I need you to stop and I need you to tell me how you feel about that success. And you know, she was very apprehensive. I'm like, no, no, no. You need to revel in that. Give yourself credit, right? I know you don't want to do that, and I'm not asking you to do it at length or at nauseum, but you have to stop and recognize for yourself when you're doing work that's good and the successes yeah. are happening. So, you know, to be honest, Sean, I had one person I coached that for two months, all we talked about was the fact that his brother was living in his house and how disruptive <laughs> it was to his life. And the reality, though, was significantly impacting his work. Yeah. So we spent two months talking about that, and eventually it netted out where we got on the phone one day and I said how did your discussion go? And he said it, it went okay. And he's moving out. You know, I think we're, we're both going to move on from this scenario. Um, but the organization's making that investment in that person because they want them to be at their best. Mm -hmm. And if that's what's impacting them, which is what was at that time for this person, then that's what we're going to talk about. It's like you had to go get a, a degree in social work in some way as well to, because you're dealing counseling. with, right. Yeah. You're not just dealing with yeah. like, Hey, let's let's figure out the leadership style that you need to help you succeed and your team succeed. But it's also like you as a person, what's yeah. you know, what is your roadblock? What is stopping you from being the best best version of yourself in this role? And and in that what you just said, Sean, is a great description of what leaders should be doing, right? Leaders should be sitting down and saying, What's getting in your way? Right? Mm -hmm. What are the challenges you're facing? What's getting in your way? Brings me to a good question, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> what happens? <laughs> What happens when the thing that's getting in the way of making a good leader is the management of that leader? Um, well, I'm at an advantage as an external consultant, and it's a funny thing. Um, it really is. And I knew this when I was in industry and dealing with consultants. We have the ability to be really open and honest and, and, and tell, the painful, tell the painful things. Um, it's... It's really nice because it wasn't like this when I was in, when I was in corporate, it's not something you just kind of have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and you just kind of have to work around it. Now, I'm also a big believer, Sean, in that, you know, absolutely. First of all, we learn more from our failures 
than our successes. We learn more from our difficult situations than the ones that were easy. That's just as human beings in our nature and our biology, we know that to be true. Um, the adversity you face with poor leaders and poor managers, I believe will teach you more. And in fact, when I spend more time when developing or running programs for current or new leaders, I spend more time talking about, let's identify the things you've seen you don't like because it, it makes them more capable of making sure they don't do those things. So I do love that. So, um, so there's a lot to be learned from that, but when you are in that situation in a corporate environment, you, you kind of just have to work around it. Maybe you get lucky and somebody at a higher level figures it out and eventually comes to you and your team and says, hey, we're trying to understand how y'all feel about so-and-so, right? And, and all gloves are off. But as a consultant, I can go to people um, and I can tell them, you know, and, and, and I have, I, I, I coached somebody a couple of years ago where they, their boss was the president and the CEO. And I kind of knew had it. I knew from the interview with the CEO about this person, I had some questions that didn't, things didn't line up. Mm -hmm. And eventually over time, and not to say that the person I coached, they were, they were, you know, a, a senior VP at the organization. They had some things they obviously could develop. But I eventually had to go to the manager and, and I, the, you know, the CEO and say, look, I, I need to talk about some things that are coming out in some of these discussions. And, and I, I want to validate that what I'm hearing first is correct, right? So I started sort of with the facts, you know, did, did this transpire that way? And then I was able to ask, you know, why, was your, why did you feel it was beneficial to react that way? Or what was your thought process where I can eventually come to, you mm -hmm. know, part of you know, part of the, the, the challenge that I think you're experiencing here is, you know, you're not being respectful to this person's, you know, time um, and therefore it's creating conflict. But it is nice being, I'm not going to lie, it's really nice being in that position to be able to say that and not worry about it impacting your career. Yeah, right? I mean, absolutely. They could not hire me again. I mean, that would impact me, but it's not like, you know, not like losing your job. Like you can't do that. And, you know, a lot of people aren't comfortable uh, in that, but I will tell you that I have a pretty thick skin and I can, and I've learned to be fairly bold and hopefully somewhat political savvy yeah. that, you know, as I got higher in organizations later in my corporate career, when I wasn't a consultant, I, I usually could, could broach topics of like, you know, I'm, this, this isn't making, I need to share something with you. Are you open to it? Are you open yeah. to listening? Cause it's not going to be positive. And then being able to say, you know, this is the way this is making me feel. I don't know what your intent is. But I do need you to know this is the way it's coming off. Do you think that's reasonable? You know, do you think my the way I'm taking it is reasonable? It mm -hmm. at least makes people think. But absolutely. I'm also careful to know not everybody's comfortable doing that. So mm -hmm. I, I get that. Well, there's that difference between like good managers, bad managers, and toxic managers. And it's yes. I like that your approach is not just to say, okay, I'm contracted to, to work with this one person about becoming a better leader, but to really take that idea of like, let's look at the whole shebang and really yeah. develop this organizational leadership uh, that maybe the person above you, there's conflict there as opposed to just this person's working with their team. Right, and because I'm a consultant, I'm privy to people are more open and honest. So I have one client now that I started by coaching two of their folks, but they've come to a place now where they're like, well, you, you know so much about the intricacies and inner workings of organization, both the good and the bad. We don't want to lose that. We want to leverage that. Where else? What else do you see as potential opportunities for, you know, for development? And I can give that insight. So this is all through about face development. 
It is. I'd love to hear what that that story was. Why did you decide to call that? Yeah. So where where is it? So um uh so back in um the late eighties um uh, a gentleman by the name of David Hackworth wrote the book about face. Um, and David at the time was considered, or Hack as we refer, most people refer to him, he was considered the most decorated living uh, veteran. And um, he had served in, he had enlisted, uh, lied on his birth certificate to enlist in the military. He had served in Korea. Uh, he had served multiple tours in Vietnam. Very controversial figure because it was David Hackworth who appeared on Issues and Answers um, and was the one who sort of went on television and said, our approach in Vietnam is all wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a guy destined for, you know, chiefest, you know, potentially for chief of staff of the army and his career ended very abruptly. Well, I read about Face right before, after I'd been commissioned, but right before I went on active duty. And it, it was incredibly, incredibly uh, impactful to me. My peers and I talked about it. So I wrote to, uh, to Colonel Hackworth, sent him a, a letter and just said, look, I, you know, I'm getting ready to go on active duty. I can't tell you how important your book was to me. It's a roadmap for understanding the, the importance of training your folks well and preparedness and dealing with units like I ended up with, Sean, right? Mm-hmm. He has a lot of stories about getting units that are completely, you know, completely in the wrong place. And he wrote me back. And um, that started a friendship between Hack and I that lasted a couple decades. And um, he was, uh, again, a controversial figure. He had moved to uh, Australia for a while, and then he came back um, to the U.S., was, did a lot of you know, press. He, he was on CNN a lot. He was you know, a reporter in the field. He wrote a lot for Newsweek. But it was, uh, you know, it was sort of one of those, you know, when people say, be, a, you know, be leery of meeting your heroes, I was fortunate that I didn't feel that way. He had a huge influence on me, and we stayed in touch. Um, he did almost get me kicked out of my advanced course. Uh, we were in a we were in a we were in a class that was uh, uh, entitled Combat Stress, and the instructor at the time was a non-combat vet, and there were a couple of us who had done at least one tour, if not more, uh, combat assignments. And somebody brought up Hack's name, which was pretty common back then. He was still being talked about a lot because of the book, and the instructor basically made a disparaging comment about it, mm-hmm. about him. So of course, not thinking twice in my you know monthly letter to Hack, I mentioned it. And next thing I know, I'm getting called into the commandant's office at the MP school because Hack called him. <laughs> and apparently went absolutely ballistic on the commandant. And of course I'm standing there and they're going, now he of course didn't say who repeated it, but uh, you know, there there is a rumor that you and him are friends, assuming it was you. And and it yeah, it almost ended my military career. To be very frank with you, um, wow. I was fortunate to recover. But I remember writing to him, going, you know, I I know you can fly off the handle hack, but like, give some thought to you know, you're out and I'm still in. Yeah. And and everybody knew. And of course, his response was, I don't understand how they knew it was you. I'm like, they knew it was me, right? I talk about you nonstop. So. <laughs> In any event, um, uh, you know, next to the passing of um, of my father, I was he was one of the most uh, most most sad days of my life when when uh, when he passed away. Um, it was fortunate he passed away close enough to Veterans Day that he was actually buried and it turned on Veterans Day at, at Arlington, mm-hmm. which was an incredible, wow. you know, incredible 
uh, experience. So yeah, so that's the story behind About Face Development. One person that I ran into at a trade show who's also uh, an ex-veteran approached me and said, I have a question to ask. Is there any chance you named your, your, your company after, after Hackworth? And I said, yeah, and thanks for, thanks for, for picking that up. So yeah, it's a great man. He was a wow. great man. Pat, how, do they, how does someone contact you, contract you? Yeah, so um, Pat at About Face Dev. Uh, so it's a, it's an abbreviation for About Face Development. So aboutfacedev.com. I have a website, aboutfacedevelopment.com. Um, uh, or LinkedIn is the easiest way to find me as well. It's Pat D'Amico. There's not too many of us around. It's D-apostrophe A-M-I-C-O. Excellent. We will have all of those links down here in the description. So if you're listening or you're watching on YouTube, just scroll down. If you're watching on YouTube, please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube. So you're the first to know whenever the Scuttlebot releases new episodes. Thank you for joining us, Pat, for this excellent conversation. And uh, I wish you nothing but the best. I hope to have you on again on the Scuttlebutt. It was wonderful stories. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Sean. Appreciate it. Of course.